0: Today's story is a collaboration with my good friend Chris Nittle from the Burnerphone podcast. Burnerphone is a collection of intimate conversations with former criminals. Chris is a documentarian whose work has been seen on Vice, Netflix, A&E, and Nat Geo. His show is raw and unedited. I promise you, this is the real deal. But today, Chris asked me if I could give his latest story the pretend radio treatment And I'm like, yeah, wait till you hear this one. Okay, let's start the show. In the late 1980s, early 90s, there was this show called 21 Jump Street. Johnny Depp starred in it, and they recently turned it into a movie. It was about undercover cops who pretended to be students in order to bust drug dealers in schools. But did you know that back in 1994, the Los Angeles Police Department's Juvenile Narcotics Unit actually recruited young officers to infiltrate classrooms in order to investigate drug deals? They couldn't just get any cop to fill this undercover role. They needed a fresh face, someone who could blend in with the crowd. So they approached Officer Ruben Palomatis.
1: They called the Undercover High School buy Program. It's, it's uh, the 21 Jump Street Program. They thought I was a pretty good candidate. I thought about it and so I took the job. I took the position.
0: Officer Ruben Palomares, now in his twenties, is going back into high school as an eleventh grader.
1: So what happens is you're a undercover cop now and they're gonna send you back to high school and they're going to train you in how to interact and how to buy drugs in high school from high school students. What your goal is to try to link the kids to the suppliers who's supplying these kids with these drugs, uh, who are the connections
0: and where they're getting them from. He can't just observe. He needs to wiggle his way in with the right click. He needs to dress the part like a gangster or a cholo. Officer Palomares decides that his character should be rebellious and a bit of a troublemaker.
1: So I went to the school. I, I I get checked in like a regular student. Um, One of the detectives plays the part as my dad. (laughs) I get a DMV license, a legitimate license with my new last
0: name. A new last name because if he changes his first name and doesn't respond, he'll blow his cover. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend Radio. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else.
1: I had been buying drugs from some of the kids, weed, cocaine. But one of the young kids that was being busted from South Central all the way down to Verdugo Hills offered to sell me some PCP.
0: Angel dust. This is perfect. Officer Palomares tells him he'll take some PCP. Now all he has to do is sit and wait till the kid calls him back and sets up a place to meet. The next day, Officer Palomares gets a message on his pager. It's him, the student with the PCP. He walks over to the payphone and calls him. While he's in the middle of the call, two guys walk up to Officer Palomares.
1: Two older gang members hit me up and tried to rob me while I'm at the fate on the payphone. They caught me off guard, but at the same time, I had my badge and my ID in my wallet, and I had my gun in my waistband. They had a gun on me, they had a gun on my stomach. So now, my goal is to. Give him my money and get rid of them because I don't want them to discover my, my badge or my my idea or my gun because I'm I'm not sure they're going to kill me or not. So I, I, I got to be ready to fight. got to be ready to fight for my life. But I gave him my money in my pocket. I, I even told him to take my car. I and mean, I was trying to distract him to get him to leave. But the guy was really persistent. And the guy with the gun kept, stabbing, like, jabbing my stomach and telling me, give me your wallet or, or I'm going to kill you. I told him, hey, uh, I don't have a, um, a wallet. I said, just take my money take my money, I take my car, if you want it, I don't care. And the guy said, man, just, just give me a wallet, man, I'm gonna kill you. And I said, I told you I don't have a wallet. During that time, the guy to my left was still reaching, trying to reach to my waist. But I, I moved his hand and uh, I popped him in the face with my left hand and I reached and grabbed the other guy's gun with my right hand and we started fighting for the gun. Uh, during that process, I'm trying to pull the gun away from him and turn it toward his face. Cause I have the barrel area of the gun. He has the grip area and uh we fall to the ground and I'm pointing the gun to his face, hoping he fires and shoots himself in the face. His partner starts kicking me, so I'm on my on my back, or kind of on my side, holding the gun with one hand, trying to take the guy's gun with one hand and trying to block the other guy's kick with my other hand. I'm pretty much in a messed up situation. Um the guy with the gun pulls the guy the gun away from me and points it toward my face. I, I immediately grab his friend's leg and throw him over me. And, and as I get up, the guy fires and shoots me in my leg, my right leg. I spin around again and, and I'm reaching for my gun. And I'm going for my gun he fires again and hits my other leg. I, I Now I'm, I'm facing him and I start shooting at him.
0: Officer Palomares grabs his gun and starts running after them. Remember, he just got shot in both legs.
1: Went back to my training. I got real calm and relaxed. The deep breath and I just aimed and started popping and hitting. Boom. And I just kept cussing and hitting and chasing. The guys turned the corner. I knew I had hit the guy, but the guy turned the corner. I stopped firing my gun. I ran back to the phone. I called 911 because I was I was I was working on the cover, but I was really not uh dealing with anything yet. I was supposed to just make that that phone call for the for the next day transaction for the PCP. <clears throat> I call one, they come get me. I got two bullet shots in my legs. I'm not feeling no pain at the time. I'm really, my adrenaline is really pumped up. I'm really mad. I'm not, I'm not satisfied. I know I shot the guy, but I wasn't satisfied because I thought to myself, the guy didn't drop.
0: As he waits for the cops to arrive, his rage takes over and silences the pain shooting up his legs. He didn't want to defend himself. He wanted to kill those guys. And it's at this point that Ruben Palomares has to make a decision. Is he one of them? Is he a good cop? Or is he a bad cop? His whole career, he struggled with this question.
1: And Here I am with all this training, I'm still getting shot I'm, and that really affected me. It, it, it triggered something within me that it changed me a lot. Yeah, it changed me a lot.
0: Police and medical rescue find Officer Palomares sitting on the ground in a pool of blood. They load him on a stretcher and take him to the hospital.
1: Uh, I recovered, I went through therapy. I recovered physically, but I wasn't, psychological emotionally, I, was, I wasn't there no more. I was I was cracked, there was a crack that happened inside me. So, I get a medal, I, I got a medal, it was like a medal of valor, they call it the police medal, it's under the medal, medal of valor.
0: It's LAPD's highest honor.
1: Cause they got the guys, they got the guys to the hospital. They were three wanted parolees at large, they were, uh, doing robberies everywhere, they had a chop shop, they had a stolen car. The driver had a 357 Magnum. Had he hit me with that gun, he would have blown my leg away. I'm really mad at myself. I'm thinking, what the hell? bastard, you know? And to me, because my whole life has been violent.
0: Ruben Palomares says that he grew up his whole life with guns pointed to his head. This kind of violence isn't new to him.
1: And I'm not stupid. I'm not going to fight when you got a gun in my head. I've had shotguns put in my head when I was a... 60, 17-year-old by, by uh, gang members, and i be, hey, I'm not a gangster, I'm not even a gang, I'm not into that stuff. And, but here I am being shot now, and here I am with all this training, I'm still getting shot out. Huh?
0: Before he was Officer Palomatis, Ruben was just a boy, resisting the fate that consumed so many of his friends and family. He was raised in Boyle Heights, east of downtown Los Angeles, surrounded by the Florencia 13th Street Gang. The gang is named after Florence, the area in L.A., And the 13? It's for its allegiance to the Mexican Mafia.
1: Um, I was born in Mexico, but I was uh, raised in Los Angeles, California. My parents came to the United States when I was uh, one year old. I got my citizenship during high school, but uh, I was raised in LA, Huntington Park and Boyle Heights. So my surrounding was always uh, full of violence. It was just a normal thing for me. I lost family members to violence at a young age. Um, one of my uncles was uh, from Watts. When I was about six years old, he had a he had one of those lowriders. He was fixing the, the car, he, he had jacked it up, and the jack broke and smashed his head and killed him. And I was only six years old.
0: Another one of Ruben's uncles was bringing in drugs from Mexico.
1: And I guess he got set up. He was going to sell uh, two kilos of cocaine, and he got killed for the two kilos of cocaine. And uh, he was like real close to me. So those type of things, that was my upbringing. And and I had uh, one of my best friends. He's like my big brother. He was killed in South Central for like a $20 rock. Um, And you know, that was like a normal thing. So for me to see that and grow up around that, it started affecting me in a way where I started having a lot of anger towards uh, that lifestyle.
0: Ruben said growing up in that environment was a constant struggle. He was raised with 10 brothers and sisters. His stepfather was an alcoholic who would often beat him. It would be much easier if he just gave in to the violence and became one of them. But he didn't. He fought back.
1: But in my mind, I always still had this, this desire to help people in my neighborhood. People that were young and people that were that being misled. So I thought if I could you know, do something positive for myself and still... I could still be like a role model or a mentor for others.
0: When he was 13, Ruben decided to redirect his violent rage into something positive.
1: And I started boxing at a real young age at a place called the Hollenbeck Youth Center. It's a boxing gym, and they had produced pretty good uh, boxers. Uh, they had uh, gold medal winners out of that gym. Some of them were champions, uh, professional champions. Some of them were Olympic contenders. And I grew up around those guys. I grew up sparring with the La Jolla.
0: He would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, run for five miles, go to school, then spar at the gym until nightfall, and do it all again the next day.
1: So basically, boxing was like my outlet. Boxing was what helped me, uh, you could say, manage my anger. Because in the ring, I can punch somebody, I can take it out on somebody, and I wouldn't get in trouble.
0: Ruben turned out to be one hell of a fighter. In 1985, he entered his first Golden Gloves tournament and won. He was on his way to make the 1992 Olympics. He could just see his future.
1: And I wanted gold medal. That way I can get the gold medal. I could win uh, my next few pro fights, get a championship and then retire with money and still have my brain intact and still be able to help others and still live my life healthy, right?
0: But eventually, even the best fighter gets knocked out.
1: I was supposed to go to the Olympics myself. I was trying out for the 1992 Olympics and I got injured. So I couldn't make the tournament that was going to get me to, like, the box office. And
0: and just like that, his boxing career was over.
1: Well, because I didn't get that medal, because of the, what happened to me, I ended up um, going to the police department. And my next goal was to be a police officer because I grew up in the area and I wanted to really uh, give something back to the to the community I grew up in. And being a police officer, to me, it, it had two sides, too. It's like a double-edged sword because I could still... Uh, Help people in the community, be a role model, but at the same time, deal with the the negative aspect of it, too. The bullies, the gang members, people that are abusing, taking advantage of people, I still enforce that, too.
0: But really, it was his chance for revenge and to put drug dealers, like the ones who murdered his uncle, behind bars. So now we're back to where we first started the story. Officer Palomares fought hard to defy a life of crime. He was shot in both legs while working after hours as an undercover officer at a local high school. He says he struggled with the shooting and needed some counseling, but instead of sending him to therapy.
1: They didn't care about that. They considered more sending me back to work.
0: His unit just sent him back to school.
1: Undercover capacity again. So I went back to school in crutches. I had been out of school for like a month and a half, maybe. When I went back to school, the, the kids were were asking all these questions. What happened to you and how, where you been? I made up a big story, big old lie. I told them I had been um, hanging out with my friends in the projects and I was trying to buy some weed off some some guys in there. And some, some other guys tried to rob me and shoot me. And you know, big old story. They liked it, they believed it. And I was a... I was a I became like, they're, they're here at the time, and they, they, they started telling me, hey, why don't you buy drugs off us? We have dope. they opened the door for me to buy a lot of drugs. In
0: 1995, Ruben Palomares got transferred to LAPD's Rampart Division, where he continued to work undercover cases. He was specifically assigned to the anti-gang unit called CRASH, CRASH is an acronym for the Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums. This is where Reuben's fate will be decided. Will he continue to play the role of the bad guy or will he just give in and become the monster he's been fighting his whole life? For the first four years during his time at Rampart Division, his supervisors described him as a leader with a reputation for excellence. But Ruben was committed to clean up his neighborhood. He was willing to use his power. To do so. This is Chris Nittle with the Burner Phone podcast talking to Ruben Palomatas.
2: Yeah, so can you talk about crossing that line? Crossing um, the line into, into doing things that are not by the book. how did you um, first get involved with that?
1: Well, one of the things that started moving me to that area was the more I would talk to to victims of crimes. They would they would get, they would would get come to us and tell us, hey, I got robbed at gunpoint by this person, <clears throat> but I'm in fear for my life. So is my family because they threatened us, and they said they're going to kill my family if I if I follow a report on them. So I just want to tell you guys, but I really can't go any further from here because my life's on the line. So we were kind of with our hands tied, but at the same time, you, you want to help somebody, then you, you you know that the person that's up to doing what he's doing, he's going to keep doing it. And something has to be done. You're thinking that something has to be done, but everybody was known to do their own dirt or their own stuff with their own partner. Um, we all knew that people were doing stuff that, that wasn't by the book, but to us as gang officers dealing with the victim, it didn't seem like anything was wrong with it. You know what I mean? I started noticing the way things were being done by the unit. So it became easier for me to justify myself and make basically clear my conscience where I'm not doing anything negative because these people are guilty of certain things. So here we are. You could become more resentful, more callous. The more you see dead people in front of you, more, more dead bodies, more victims, uh, you start storing a lot of stuff within you to the point where it starts Stuffing you up to the point where you you become really really cold and heartless sometimes.
0: He remembers this one night during his observation posts. He needed to ID some guys selling drugs in the neighborhood.
1: While we're doing uh, the clearing of the building, my partner and I, we happen to walk into a base a laundry room where the guys are supposed to be hiding all the time, or or, or stashing money or drugs or, or guns. We confront a guy with a shotgun. My partner and I got in a gunfight with this guy. We ended up shooting the guy, he ended up dying. It was a, a moment where it just cars off guard. The guy turned around, had a shotgun on us and we just, we just threw and fired away. And The guy ended up uh, getting hit several times with my forty-five, and he ended up dying.
0: Well, that's one way to tell the story. The man Officer Palomares fired six rounds at was named Carlos Ortiz. He was shot in the basement laundry room of his apartment building. Palomares and the police said Vertiz was a well-known drug dealer, and they had no choice but to shoot him. But Carlos Vertiz, the man they shot, had no previous arrests involving drugs or violence. He was just a 44-year-old man who, as far as we know, lived an honest life as a painter and a carpenter. The word on the street is that the killing wasn't an accident. They say Palomares and police were actively looking for someone and they just happened to kill the wrong man. Oh, and uh, the shotgun that Carlos Ortiz allegedly aimed at Palomares never fired. The chamber was empty and the gun's serial number was scratched off, much like the guns that were also found at other suspicious police shootings.
1: Uh, that kind of stuff was starting to become a normal thing for me. I started like really embracing that, that, that mentality thinking that it was part of the job. The ultraviolence? Yes. Uh, Not too long after that, Rafael Perez gets in trouble.
0: Rafael Perez is a crooked cop in the Rampart Division.
1: He had uh, stolen some cocaine from the evidence locker room, uh, switched it with, I think it was flour or whatever it was. He's out there having people selling the cocaine. They cooked it into rock. And he had people selling it for him. We didn't know about this. None of us knew that. Unless it was just him and his partner, but nobody else knew about that.
0: LAPD became suspicious and started investigating Rafael Perez. He was suspected of being involved in a bank robbery committed by another officer in the Rampart Division. He was also being looked at for the shooting and framing of an unarmed gang member. They eventually busted him. And when they did... Officer Perez implicated 70 officers of dirty work. This is Chris Niddle.
2: Yeah, he said, didn't he say that you were involved in a few bad shootings
1: that weren't justified? Yeah, those are his stories.
0: Rafael Perez told detectives, I would look at everything Palomares has done, every arrest that he's made.
2: Yeah, so, so that was kind of the, I guess, him kind of flipping was the first moment that investigators started to realize some things were going on. Um, Oh yeah,
1: they did. Um, He kind of alerted them, so that kind of opened the door for everybody to start getting investigated. People started getting laid off um, without pay or with pending investigations because of what Perez has said. So they kind of disbanded the unit.
0: Officer Ruben Palomares was investigated as part of the Rampart probe but was never charged. Ruben says he felt a lot of resentment.
1: Back in the days, I was real vindictive and uh, revengeful. I started getting really mad towards towards the department and people at the same time. Everything just started uh, accumulating within me. Everything that I, I, I despised so much started catching up to me. The fact that I didn't like these guys making all the money, and, and here I am putting my life on the line making the money I was making. I'm thinking to myself, you know what, these guys are making millions and this drug, doing what they're doing. Um, they're making more money than me. Why, why not take their money? I'm thinking to myself, let me take their money. That, that, that'll make it better for me.
0: So Ruben, the boy whose life was destroyed by drug dealers, is now a police officer who's going to use his power to rob them.
1: I started forming a group of guys in the department and, and people outside of the department that I knew that were connected to certain, some people from the cartels. And I started asking them if they had any debts they wanted me to collect for them. I just said, just let me, give me one, one or two good, easy debts to collect. Make sure that they're big money debts, and, uh, um, I'll do it for you guys. And that's how I started It became super easy, became like a rush, like a high. I like the, I enjoy the easy money. I enjoyed the the power trip. It was like taking candy from a baby. It was so, something so easy, and and uh, uh it just was a rush. I was an adrenaline junkie. That was how I got my fix.
0: Ruben's group masqueraded as on-duty police officers, breaking into drug houses and stealing all their drugs and cash.
1: So my 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 my, my connection would start setting me up with some some houses. Some of the cartel guys would set me up with some of the competition, or even people that owed them money, that owed them 75 keys of coke, whatever. Even somebody had a house that was stacked up with a ton of weed or half a ton. I'd end up hitting the house, taking the drugs, and help having my guys move the drugs, and then i get the money from that. I basically became worse than the guys that I was after.
0: So how would he do it? Ruben would borrow the patrol cars from the police academy.
1: I started taking those cars from the academy and I'm using them to take down the houses like a normal search warrant or like a normal police raid. I uh, trained my partners, the ones that weren't cops, I trained them in the police tactics. I already knew, I had already did surveillance on the houses. I already knew who the players were. I knew if there was weapons, if there was no weapons. I I already knew how many people in the house. I, I knew the whole setup because... I've been doing surveillance on the houses or following people around waiting for the the drugs to show up from Mexico. We'd hit the house, get the money or the dope, and uh the, uh sometimes knock, play the part like I'm like I'm doing a narcotics investigation, go in, find the stuff, play the part, let the people make them think they're going to get uh they're going to be giving a break, um and and just leave with the stuff.
2: Can you think back to any notable are memorable robberies that you did?
1: Well, I know that the first the first one was the one that got me hooked because the first one was I had to be close to seven to $800,000 cash, 15 keys of Coke, and that thing was like the first one, and then that one got me hooked. So once you,
2: once you got all that Coke, what was the process of getting rid of it? How would you do that?
1: Some of the same guys that were working for me, they'd already have buyers for me. And for the most part, I get rid of it for fifteen uh, grand a key, eighteen grand a key. It depend who we sold it to, and on what kind of coke it was. Uh, you were gonna make twenty. Sometimes I even get rid of a uh, key for thirty grand.
2: So you were on an incredible high, and, and I was a making high a high, lot of high. money. What was what was your life like then? What was going on? How were you spending that money? What what, what was your lifestyle like?
1: The worst thing is having to launder the money, clean the money up. Or get, you know, that was a, all those things are difficult. Hide the money. All that stuff is a is a hassle. So I wasn't trying to be flashy and I, I wasn't being flashy. I was being real discreet about it, but I had guys around me that weren't being discreet. They were the kind of the guys that like to be flashy. To me, I was just trying to be normal. act like no, nothing going on, just be like a normal thing. Um, But I knew that I had the stuff. I had the money put away. I had stuff. I was able to get, uh, remodel my house. You know, just little detail, little stuff here and there. I wasn't trying to get get out in the open and exposed too much. Yeah. I didn't want attention.
0: Officer Ruben Palomares continues to rob gang members and drug dealers for the next three years. He lost count to the number of break-ins he committed. At this point, it's too late. I mean, there's no turning back.
1: And that was another thing. When you're working as a dirty cop, you're you're still having to wonder what's one of these guys gonna ever flip on me, turn turn on me? They're gonna tell on me. So you're still you have so much pressure, a lot of stuff behind your mind that's in the back of your mind thinking, man, I wonder, you know, what it takes. One of these guys could, could really turn on me. So I gotta have a balance. So am I up? Am I gonna end up having to kill these guys? Am I end up having to? What am I gonna do to to make sure that none of these guys flip on me if I do make it through this without going to prison?
2: How did it all go down? So after this run, after this two- to three-year run, um, what, what was the downfall? How did, how did you get taken down? How did your organization my, get taken down?
1: My cousin and his uh, friend were getting involved with some Colombians, supposedly some Colombians. They wanted to buy some cocaine. I told my cousin who worked for me, don't get involved with nobody. Don't bring anybody into our group. It's supposed to be between us. He didn't know how to keep his mouth shut. He didn't know how to be loyal. He had been 12 years in the Army, but none of that must have taught him anything because he had no idea of, of chain of commanders or, st- or the structure. He was just like a loose cannon. And um, he started getting involved with these these guys in San Diego who were supposedly Colombians. They weren't going to buy 10 kilos of cocaine off these guys. I wasn't involved in buying dope. I didn't need to buy the drugs. I was involved in basically um, helping myself. Um, so what happened was, He, um, he went, he, they met with these Colombians. They asked me if I wanted to, um, meet the guy because he wanted me to collect the debt for him. At first, I was hesitant. I didn't really want to. Uh, somehow I got convinced I went to meet the guys when they were going to do the drug, the drug transaction. Well, what happened was, um, it was a sting operation against my cousin and his friend. Well, I got busted with them that same day. We thought we were going to take our lumps. We got busted with 10 keys. That's it. But these guys uh, got scared and to get out of jail, or well, at least get less time in prison, they told on me, on everything I was doing. And that's how I I got exposed. Okay. That's how I got exposed. That's how my career went down. That's how I got busted.
0: <laughs> Officer Ruben Palomares was sentenced to 18 years in prison for his crimes. He ended up only serving 16. Interesting side note. Remember Rafael Perez and the LAPD's Rampart division? Well, for a long time, there was this conspiracy theory floating around that 30 LA cops and death row record Suge Knight conspired to assassinate Notorious B.I.G. I mean, why would LAPD and Suge Knights work together? Well, There was this incident where another cop, Kevin Gaines, was having an affair with Suge Knight's wife, Sherita, and he was killed by a fellow officer, LAPD narcotics detective Frank Liga, in an apparent road rage incident. While investigating the shooting, detectives discovered that Kevin Gaines, the officer who was killed, and other police officers were spending off-duty hours working security for death row records. So when Biggie Smalls was assassinated, Biggie's family filed a lawsuit against LAPD. And to everyone's surprise, a federal judge issued a written ruling stating that she believes LAPD purposely hid more than 200 pages of documents in officers' involvement in the murder of Notorious B.I.G. Former LAPD detective Russell Poole told Rolling Stone magazine this wasn't a gang shooting. Biggie's murder was more sophisticated than anything any gang member could pull off. Despite this revelation, the judge declared a mistrial, and Biggie's family eventually dropped the lawsuit. The 1997 murder of Notorious B.I.G. remains officially unsolved. Alright, so I'm here with Chris Niddle from the Werner Phone Podcast, so, Chris, tell me about your show.
3: It's uh, in-depth conversations with former criminals. And um, I reach out to people who've, you know, formally lived that life. And I get deep into their backgrounds and we talk about their life story.
0: All right. So I want, I want to talk about your show in a second. But first, let's talk about this case that when, when you, you emailed me or you texted me or something, and you said, hey, I got, I got this great interview with this corrupt cop. And, you know, I, you've been talking to me actually for a while now since you've been getting this story, but like, how did you get that interview? I mean, that seems like, I mean, my jaw dropped when you told me that you had this interview.
3: Yeah, uh, you know, I was going down a wormhole. I was, uh, I was reading about the Rodney King incident. I was reading about the uh, long history of corruption with the LAPD, and I, I came upon the Rampart scandal, uh, which led me to the conspiracy of the uh, notorious B.I.G. being possibly murdered by officers within the Rampart division. Um, I was reading about Rafael Perez, who was uh, part of the part of the Rampart unit who flipped and basically outed all of the corruption going on in the LAPD, and then I stumbled upon uh, Ruben's story, and uh, I read that he was out of prison, I reached out to him, and that's how it came to be.
0: And you know, this Rampart division was kind of like the inspiration for a lot of the shows and movies that we see, you know, with uh, like The Shield on FX. I didn't realize that until, you know, we started working on this story together that 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 was based off of the Rampart Division and so many other movies. I mean,
3: yeah, it's uh, known as one of the most widespread cases of police corruption in U.S. history.
0: So, Chris, can I give my audience an idea of like the different types of former criminals that you interview? Because you interview a a bunch of different people.
3: Sure. Yeah, I'm shooting for variety. Um, So in the first season, I've interviewed uh, a former identity thief. Uh, Black Hat Hacker. Uh, I've interviewed a former Moonshiner. I've interviewed a former LSD Kingpin, a former meth cook, a former efficiency expert for organized crime, a former cocaine trafficker, a former pot smuggler. So I really run the gamut of uh, all types of different individuals and different trades.
0: You know what kind of surprises me about your show is the fact that these people speak to about their crime with with pride and professionalism, right? Like uh, I was just thinking about one of the episodes that you did and the guy sounds like you're interviewing a CEO of some company. You know what I mean? Like he's legit, like in terms of how smart and sharp he is. But then if you pay attention and you listen to what he's saying, he's he's one of the worst criminals ever, right?
3: Well, there there can be a lot of similarities between a Fortune 500 CEO and, um, for example, a guy who moves metric tons worth of uh, cocaine or heroin.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, you know, logistics, overseeing individuals, uh, management, uh, research and development. I mean, there's all all different types of similarities that you could find within the illegal and legal world.
0: Yeah. So, you know, tell my audience also about your background. Cause you have like a unique background. This is, you know, the podcast burner phone podcast is kind of a side gig, but your main gig during the day is that you're a producer, right? Yes.
3: I uh, produce documentaries. I've produced for, um, national geographic, uh, vice land, uh, Netflix, A&E and others. Um, my focus has been on crime and drug subjects. Um, I really like getting deep into this world. Um, I'm an access oriented type of ind- individual, so I like hearing straight from the people that are in that world and, and telling their stories and uh, getting a different perspective than most people can really get, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, man, thank you so much for letting me tell your story because this was all you, man. And uh, I hope we get to do this again, right? Yeah, dude, I think
3: I think we can do a couple of different ones. Uh, yeah. It'd be cool to uh, continue this. I think it's a great collaboration.
0: Subscribe to Burner Phone Podcast on iTunes or follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is Burner P Podcast. You can also find this in the show notes. I want to thank Joe Basile for creating an awesome theme for Pretend Radio. You can find Joe Basile's original music and composition at thechicken.net. He is such a talented guy, and I'm so lucky that he worked on our music. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode. And I want to remind you that we're still collecting lies and posting it on our Patreon channel. I asked... You guys to submit lies and I've been getting some back and they are incredible. I'm going to post them. You'll find it on our Patreon feed, which you could find on pretendradio.org. Thank you to all those who already support the show. Also, a uh, little show note. I don't know if you noticed but I'm I'm releasing an episode every other week now. I'm going to try to release an episode indefinitely so that the breaks between seasons aren't as long. Next time on Pretend Radio, I'm going to share with you my biggest fear. I'm going to visit a Santeria priest.
1: I'm going
0: to take you inside the really freaky world of Santeria. I'm not going to lie, this episode scared the hell out of me. Now, check out some of these awesome podcasts. See you in a couple weeks. Cast off homemade cassettes, celebrities' old typewriters, Barry Manilow memorabilia. People collect all kinds of interesting and unusual things. And the podcast for Keeps collects the stories of these passionate and sometimes record-setting collectors. Join me, David Peterkovsky, as I have in-depth but lighthearted conversations with some of the world's most enthusiastic collectors to learn more about their stupendous stashes. Collectors make the world a little more interesting, and For Keeps, happily
3: and humorously, shares their obsessions with the masses. To check out For Keeps, look for it wherever you get your podcasts, or visit forkeepspodcast.com. Hong Kong Confidential, a podcast with Jules Hannaford, is designed to educate and entertain my audience. It's an interview-style show where many topical social issues are discussed and personal stories are shared. The podcast can be inspiring, confronting, harrowing and at times hilarious. All of the stories have uplifting messages. We all need to be heard to heal and listening to the experiences of others can often help the rest of us deal with whatever life has to throw at us. Find Hong Kong Confidential on OzCast Network at www.ozcastnetwork.com. Hong Kong Confidential is also available on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher and YouTube and anywhere that you can find your podcasts. Check out Hong Kong Confidential today.